Several years ago, um, my wife's uh, parents, my in-laws, just amazing people, my mother-in-law's actually here this morning, love her to death, they took us on maybe the greatest trip that Sydney and I've ever gotten to go on. They took us to Italy. It was a trip we could have never afforded. It was just like this act of grace. They're like, hey, come on this amazing vacation. And so we got to spend like 10 or 11 days exploring just one of the most beautiful places in the earth. And I remember this one moment in particular. We were staying in Venice, and Sydney and I had gotten out that morning. We are going to walk around Venice and just explore, you know, just this amazing city with these water canals. I mean, it's everything that you'd hope it would be. And so we're like walking around Venice, and we come to this cathedral that is kind of a center point there in Venice. It's, it's quite famous if you've ever been there. It's called San Marcos Cathedral. And I remember we see this beautiful cathedral, just this amazing just piece of architectural work. I mean, this fantastic work of art. And I decided, hey, I just want to go in and walk around. And so Sydney and I go in to walk around. And there were two options for kind of exploring that cathedral. One was you could just go on a self-guided tour. You didn't have to pay any money. You could just like walk through. You could see everything, take pictures, read the plaques. And then there was a, a guided tour that you had to pay for. You had to pay like 15 bucks and they'd give you headphones. And some guy with a thick Italian accent would try to speak to you in English and tell you what it is that you were seeing. And we were dirt poor, so we took the free option. Big shocker, you know. But we walked through San Marcos Cathedral, and we're like taking pictures, and we're reading the plaque, and uh, little plaques. And it's this amazing kind of moment of seeing something beautiful. A couple days later, we were out exploring Venice this time with Sydney's whole family, with her parents and her brother and his girlfriend. And her dad decided, hey, let's all go see San Marcos Cathedral. And in my mind, I'm like, man, we've already been there. We've already done this before, but I'm a good, compliant son-in-law, a real gift of God. And um, <laughs> I'm like, sure, I'll do that. And because my father-in-law is not cheap, he decides to, to really give us the grace of understanding what it is that we're getting ready to see. And he springs the 15 bucks. We get the headphones. And all of a sudden, I'm walking through this place that I had already been, but it is coming to life with new beauty. Like, have you ever had one of those experiences where you see something that you've always seen, but all, all of a sudden it's filled with new beauty? It's filled with new meaning? And, and I was reminded that day as I was walking back through that cathedral that there are certain things in life that we need someone to help us if we're going to understand the beauty of what it is that we're seeing. There, there are some things that we need someone to, to give us a tour, to give us a kind of say, hey, this is what it is that, that you're looking at. And I think baptism is one of those moments. It's something that hopefully we'll get to celebrate all day long today. I think baptism is one of those things where we need someone to say, hey, this is what it is that you're looking at. This is the beauty of what it is that you're getting ready to see. Because in a room like this, you know, almost 700 seats, every one of us looks at this moment from a variety of perspectives. Some of you look at this and you go, man, that's a really cool symbolic moment in a person's life. It's a symbolic moment where you step in and you're, and you're just recognizing something. And it's a symbol. And there's some of you that go, no, 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 it's more than a symbol. That is, that is a sacrament. That is sacred. There's this collision in the water of God's grace and your obedience. It's like heaven is kissing earth and we can't explain it. And some of you go, no, it's more than a symbol. It's sacred. And some of you are like, no, it's, it's not symbolic. It's not sacred. This is just silliness. This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And some of you are here this morning and you're like, why in the world would any adult get in this horse trough filled with water in a bar in downtown Nashville? These people are drinking the Kool-Aid. And I say, we don't have any Kool-Aid to drink. But if we did, we'd share it. Like, it's like some of you just look at it and go, this is silly. What is this? And here's what I want this morning. I just want the scriptures to be our tour guide. I want to put on the metaphorical headphones and let the Apostle Paul, this guy that had grown up under the weight of oppressive, misguided religion, 
And he encounters the grace and the beauty of Jesus. And in Romans chapter 3 through 6, I'm going to argue that Paul gives one of the most beautiful pictures of how your belief in Jesus leads you to baptism in Christ. He, he gives us just this overarching picture. And he's going to tell us this story. I want you to see this. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 22 through 28 if you want to follow along. And I'll just kind of preface it this way. Reading Romans is like reading Shakespeare. I mean... Every word is confusing and big and feels more complicated than it needs to be, and and yet it's the Word of God, and so I'm going to read the whole passage, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to kind of highlight some things. I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees, but I do want you to understand what it is that we're reading. Okay, so Romans chapter 22, he's talking about Jesus and his righteousness, and he says, the righteousness of Jesus is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. Between Jew or Gentile doesn't mean if you grew up in church or not. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter if you are a a, a promised child of Abraham or not. What we're getting ready to celebrate is available to any human being. Verse 23: For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified, or saved, cleansed, freed, freely by His grace through this redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he could be just, listen to that, so that he could be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That is an amazing sentence. Verse 27, where then is our boasting? It's excluded because of what law? The law that requires your works? In other words, Paul's saying, does God need your help? No, that's silliness. He says, no, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is saved or justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, like I said, Shakespearean in nature, right? Big, heady, complicated words. But I want you to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying. This man whose life was wrecked by the grace of God, he looks at us, and in verse 23, this is what he says. He says, every one of our lives falls short of the standard that God has expected us to live up to. Now, I'm not going to beat you up on that. I know in our Western culture, that's not a very popular view. Like, who's to say that you're wrong? Who's to say that I'm right? I know that's, that's what our Western culture says, but when we're alone at night, we know that silliness. We all know that there are things in us that don't measure up, and we often don't know how to name it or classify it. Sometimes we think, that, think it's our looks or our performance at work, or sometimes we think it's uh, our, uh, our personality, whatever it may be. All of us know in the core of who we are that there are places that don't measure up, and we don't know where to name it. And Paul says, let me name it for you. Verse 23, look at this. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that word sin is this churchy word that we probably don't use a whole lot at work. You probably don't walk through the office when, you're, when your boss sends out the wrong memo saying, hey, you sinned, bro. Like, it's not the way that you operate at work. You get fired if you did that, right? But to sin literally just means you missed the target. You missed the mark. You were aiming for something, and you came up short. And Paul says, let me describe the mess of every human being, the mess that all of us find ourselves in. That we've pulled back the arrow on the bow. We have aimed for the target of God's righteousness, of God's goodness. And the arrow has come up short. It doesn't matter if you're the Pope or if you're someone that's selling drugs to kids in preschool. Like, it doesn't matter who you are. You fall short of the standard that God has made you for. 
He said, everyone has fallen short of that, and there will be a moment, and I want you to think about this. I know it's a Sunday morning, and most of us are pretty young, and so we don't like to think about these things, but there's this moment when we're going to stand before the glory of God. We're going to stand before God face to face, and God is not going to judge you based upon the person next to you. He's not going to judge you based upon Hitler. He's not going to compare you to the worst person you know. He's going to stand you right next to his son, Jesus, and he says, that's the measuring mark. And in that moment... No, amount, no amounts of service or worship or giving or trying or striving will lead us to a place of measuring up to what God has made us for. In that moment, you realize, man, if Jesus is a standard, all of us fall short. I remember when I was in high school, I had this friend who was, he was a really good-looking friend. All the girls in our school loved him. He was funny, athletic. They, he you know, had a great physique. He was just the guy that all the girls in our school wanted to date. And then... Our junior year in high school, another guy transferred in from another state, another school comes in, and I kid you not, he was literally a model for Abercrombie. So if, if you're old enough to remember when Abercrombie was a big deal, that was a big deal. I mean, like, he came in, and all of a sudden, the girls in our school wanted nothing to do with my buddy. They're like, yeah, you were yesterday's news. I mean, this guy, like, is chiseled from the heavens. He's here. And, and all of a sudden... My friend experienced what all of us will experience today when we're standing before God. His whole life, he'd been told he was beautiful because he was standing next to people that looked like me. He was a seven. <laughs> it's true. He was a seven hanging out with fours. But all of a sudden, a ten shows up, and he's like, oh, I don't measure up. And Paul says there will be a moment when your eyes will be opened, and you're just going to see things as they actually are. You and Jesus. And you just realize, wow, only God. And he says, that's the mess. And if the story stopped there, it would be so depressing. But it doesn't stop there. Paul says, I want you to see how God's life enters into your mess. Jump back to verse 22. He says, there's this righteousness that is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew or Gentile. Then in verse 24, he says, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of Christ Jesus. And he keeps going. And I want you to see, he says, this righteousness is given. This righteousness is given to all who have faith or trust in or believe in Jesus. Now let's understand this idea of righteousness for just a minute because that's a big churchy word. This idea of righteousness is talking about a status or a state of being in perfect fellowship, perfect honorability, perfect commitment with God. He says to be righteous means that you are standing before God and you can look at God in the eyes and say everything about my life is right according to your standards. That's what righteousness means. It's a status. And Paul says, listen, none of us have that status. None of us will look at God in all of his holiness and go, God, I'm good without you. You may be saying that right now, but when you see him, you're not going to say that. And there's this moment when you're going to be standing before God in all of his glory and all of his righteousness. Wow. And Paul says there's a righteousness that only Jesus has earned. He's the only one that lived a sinless life. He's the only one that lived a perfect life. And he says that status, that state of being can be transferred to you, can be given to you, not just so you can enter into eternal life after you die, but so you can enter into eternal life right now. That there's a way of living that is available to you and I because the status of Jesus can be transferred upon you. How? He says, through faith. You can't earn this. You don't deserve this. You're not entitled to this. This is a gift of God's grace in your life. 
If you don't hear me say anything else this morning, I hope you hear me say this. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus will save. And everything else is just our response to what he does, who he is, and what he's at work in the life uh, of every person who calls on the name of Jesus. Remember when Sydney and I were dating? We dated for five years. I wouldn't really recommend that long time to date. But we're dating, and I remember we're at that point where we're ready to get engaged, and there's this woman in our church. We hadn't started Ethos yet. I was a part of another church. There's this uh, older lady in our church who would always come up to me. She's like, when are you going to put a ring on that finger? I mean, like, you know, you know she's going to leave you when she comes to your senses. I'm like, thanks, I get it. You know, she's, she's better than me. But she'd come up to me, hey, when are you going to propose? And I, would, I remember one time just looking at her saying, do you know how expensive it is? to buy a diamond ring. And I, so I just kind of started giving her the business. I'm like, I work three jobs as a college student. I'm poor. I can't afford a ring. And I'm just telling her, I'm like, you don't know anything about diamonds, lady. And I'll never forget, she looked at me and laughed. And she says, do you know what I do for a job? And I said, no. She said, I'm a jeweler. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I started repenting for my attitude towards her. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. You know? But she began to explain, she said, she said, jewelers, she said, we don't buy our diamonds from stores like you do. We, we own the stores that you come to. She said, we go to places and we buy the diamonds at a much cheaper rate and we bring them back to our store and we jack the price up. And she said, the only reason you can buy a diamond from the places that I buy a diamond from is because you have a status. You're, you're a dealer. You're a jeweler. You have the credentials. She said, do you want to go to me? Go with me to the next expo? I'm like, yes, I do. And there's this moment where I'm standing there at this huge convention getting ready to go into this, this, this jeweler's convention to buy diamonds that I know nothing about. And I'm standing here, and the only reason I got in was not because I paid a fee or because I learned some knowledge or because I grew up in the right home. The only reason I got into the convention because someone chose to stand by me and give me her status. That would be a great place to say amen to. Do you understand what just happened there? <laughs> How do you get into the kingdom of God? Not your family. Not your strength, not your effort, not your goodness. It's that Christ says, can I stand at the threshold of the kingdom with you? Can I put my arm around you? Can I pay the price? Can my status take you in? Hey, you want to go with me? He says, the only people that miss out on there are the ones that say, no, I don't want that. I don't want that. And Paul says, Jesus can give his status, look down at verse 25, because he was willing to be your sacrifice of atonement. That, that word atonement, if you want to understand it, you can literally break it up by the syllables. It means at one mint. That you are becoming at one with something. You're becoming at one with someone. And Paul says, why can Jesus give you that status to enter into the kingdom? Because he was willing to be a sacrifice that would become at one with your sin so that you could become at one with God. That Jesus would become at one with you so that you could become at one with God. Just an amazing moment. He keeps going, verse 26. He said he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Listen to this, verse 27. Or sorry, verse 26. So that God can be just and also the one who justifies. I love this reality about God. That God is going to remain perfectly just. That God hates sin because he hates what it does to you. He hates what it does to the world. God will never be okay with sin. But the reason God can be okay with sinners coming into his presence is because Jesus, the atoning sacrifice, has transferred his status upon you so that one day when you stand before God, when he looks at you, it's what 2 Corinthians 5 says, when he looks at you, he no longer sees your shortcomings. He sees the accomplishments of Jesus. 
Wow. And Paul says, when you understand that, who in the world would ever boast? Who would ever brag? When you get in the waters of baptism, it is not about who you are. It's like, wow, I was a mess. I fell short, and God entered into the midst of that mess. I wish we had time to really look at the next three chapters in detail. But chapter three of Romans is Paul telling this church, hey, look at God's work in the midst of your mess. Then you flip over to chapter four, and it's a case study. He says, hey, you don't believe me? He says, look at Abraham. And he looks at the church, and he says, hey, do you think Abraham saved himself? And most of the people in the church are probably like, yeah, he's a pretty good guy. Paul's like, no, even Abraham didn't save himself. God saved him. This is something he received through faith. And then he gets into chapter 5 and he says, let me help you understand what happens in your life when you receive this salvation. And he talks about the peace and the hope and the confidence of God that floods the heart of the believer. And then he gets into Romans chapter 6. This is where we're going to end this morning. Romans chapter 6, and Paul's going to say, when you understand belief in Jesus, what it is that Jesus is doing, when you understand that, he says you take a step towards baptism. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is bringing these two worlds together, how belief and baptism begin to collide. It's not one or the other. It's not either or. It's together. So something's happening. Paul's writing this letter to the Roman church. And for the last 30 years, it had been 30 years since Jesus had ascended to heaven. Paul's writing this letter, and they had been taking the words of Jesus seriously. Do you remember Jesus? He was baptized, right? Matthew chapter 3. And so for 30 years, the disciples have been saying, hey, we want to do whatever Jesus did. If he modeled it, we're going to step into it. But Jesus didn't just model it. Jesus actually commanded baptism, Matthew chapter 28. He looks at his disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm in charge. And because I'm in charge, here's what I want you to do. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, hey, this isn't optional. It's part of the story, part of what we do. And for 30 years up until this point, the followers of Jesus, as they were placing their faith in Jesus, they'd be baptized. And Paul, here in Romans chapter 3 through 6, he's making this connection. He says, I want you to see what your belief does. Your belief rips open the heavens to the work of God in your life right now. And the response to that belief is to step in to Christian baptism. Do you realize every Christian in the New Testament was baptized, with the exception of one person, the thief on the cross. And I think he had a pretty good excuse. He couldn't get down Jesus looked at him and said, you're saved, we're, we're, we're good. But every other follower of Jesus in the scriptures, their belief was accompanied with baptism. And Paul says, I want you to understand what is happening here. Because it's not just symbolic, it is a collision. It's a collision of grace and obedience. It's a collision of God's power and work in your life. I'm going to read this. Romans chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 3. He says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus... We're baptized into his death. So he's beginning to describe what baptism does. He says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. For if we have been united with him, that's a huge word. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Jesus. 
The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I love this moment. For those of you that have been baptized, Jesus is saying, God has already counted you dead to sin. It's time that you start counting yourself dead to sin. In God's eyes, you're good. But in your eyes, you keep taking yourself through the ringer. He says, let me help you see this. Verse 12, he says, so don't let sin reign anymore in your mortal body. Don't obey its evil, evil desires. Paul says, you have a choice from now on. You used to be a slave to this. No longer are you a slave. You can choose to keep submitting to sin, but you don't have to do that anymore. God's done something in you. Verse 13, so don't offer any part of yourself to be a sin, as a sin instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those that have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law but under grace. I just want you to see this. He's talking about baptism. He says, when you believe, he says, you step into baptism, and baptism is this picture of both union and liberation. Of both union and liberation. He says, baptism is this, this moment when you are united with Christ physically in his death, his burial, his resurrection. It's your wedding ceremony here on earth. It is preparing you for the wedding supper of the Lamb, the, the resurrection ceremony that you will get to experience one day when you see Jesus face to face. He says there's this union. Baptism is this moment where you stand before your friends and your family and you stand before God and you say, Jesus, I want to be united with you in all of your life. And I want you to hear me very clearly because some of you right now are pondering baptism. Baptism is not the thing that gets you out of suffering and hardship in this life. In fact, I would argue that baptism invites you into it fully. Baptism says, I want all of you, Jesus, in richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Whatever it is that you have, I want to be in this. Baptism is this moment of full identification with the entirety of Jesus' life. It's like when Sydney and I stood at the altar and we, we spoke our vows to one another and we said, hey, we're in this to death to us part. For the rest of my life, I wanted people to identify me with Sydney and Sydney with me. So that when they think of me, they think of her. And when they think of her, they think of me. There is this union that brings identification. But union doesn't just bring identification. Union also brings participation. And he says, he says, because baptism isn't just your ticket into the afterlife. Baptism is your ticket into this life, the life that you were meant for. And as you lay down in the watery grave and as you come back out, there is a brand new way of living that is available for you just right here and right now. Something begins to change. The reason I got married to Sydney was not just for the moment of marriage, but for the lifetime of marriage, to walk with her, to know her, to love her, to grow together. And baptism is this picture of union but it's also this picture of liberation. I want you to see this. Jump back to verse 7 and 8. I'll just highlight this real quickly. In verse 7, Paul is going to tell us something that we all know. He's going to speak in the natural for just a minute. He's going to talk about the physical life. He's going to say, don't you know that when someone dies, they're no longer slaves to death? So I want you to think about this truth for just a minute. Isn't it true that when a man drops dead of a heart attack, it is no longer possible for that man to struggle with lust or with pride? He's not going to cuss anyone out on the way to work anymore. That guy's as dead as they get. And we understand this in the physical life. When you physically die, sin no longer has a grip over you. And so Paul uses this example. He talks about the natural. Jump down to verse 8 or move to verse 8. He says, but let me give you a spiritual example. He says, now if we died with Christ, he's now talking spiritually. 
If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live, for we know that since Jesus was raised from the dead, he can't die again. The death he died, he died once and for all, verse 11. So in the same way, count yourself dead to sin but alive to God. It's the reason that when we baptize people here at Ethos, we say you are dead to sin as they go under the water. You are alive in Christ as they come out. It doesn't mean that that person will never sin again. I sin all the time. You can ask my wife. Like I, I was baptized a long time ago. I'm quite proficient in still sinning. But Paul is saying no longer do you have to be slaves to your sinful desires. Before, before you were in Christ, your sinful desires dictated and steered your life. Now that you're in Christ, you have a choice. It's because the Spirit of God's at work in your life. So count yourself dead and count yourself alive. And then he goes on and says, and quit offering yourself over and over and over to the same old sin pattern. I love verse 14. He says, because sin will no longer be your master because you're under the law of grace. Wow. How amazing is this? And Paul says, I want to explain what it is. He's walking us through the cathedral. He's saying, let me point out what's happening here. Your life was a mess. Jesus entered into it. He freely gives you his righteousness, his status, his grace, his love so that you can enter into the kingdom of God right now. And he says, and anyone that understands that steps into union with Jesus. Being liberated so that the old grip of sin on your life is broken off and set free. You see this all throughout the Bible. Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and gives a sermon. And he tells the people about their sinfulness. And they respond. They say, what do we need to do to be saved? You remember this, Acts chapter 2? What do we need to do to be saved, to be right with God? And I love Peter's response. He says, repent. He says, just turn around. Come to God. That's what you do to be saved. And be baptized, every single one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, this promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. And I love Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 44. It says, and all... And all who believed were baptized that day. 3,000 of them immediately. There's this thing in the scriptures. When you believe, then you're baptized. There's not 15 steps in between it. You don't have to take 10 years to get rid of all your baggage and all your sin. When you, you believe, you step into baptism. So did you see in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10? One of my favorite stories is Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer. This, this cruel man, uh, this guy that was the prison guard, had spent the whole night beating Paul and his companions, torturing them in this little makeshift prison in the city of Philippi. And he sees the grace of God at work in Paul's life, and he looks at Paul and says, Hey, Paul, what do I need to do to have what you have? What do I need to do to be saved? And what does Paul say? He says, Believe. He says, Believe. Trust in Jesus. That's what you need to do. You need to acknowledge that only Christ can save you. That's what you do. And it says then in the very next verse, verses 32 through 34, it says, and then immediately at that very hour, the jailer and his entire family were baptized. Every one of them. No distance between belief and baptism. It's just this moment of response. I go, it's what they did. And I just want to ask you, what about you? What, are you, what is God inviting you to do? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That He alone measures up before the Heavenly Father? Do you believe that one day you'll stand before the Lord and your good works will not be enough? Only Christ in you. If you believe, take a step into baptism. Here in just a few minutes, we're going to have a time of response. And I want to be very clear. I believe God is inviting every human being in this room to respond this morning. There will just be different ways that we respond. 
For some of you, it's going to be in the context of communion, and we take communion every single week. And I want, I want to just remind you what this is. You know, last year, Sydney and I celebrated our 10th anniversary uh, at, of, our, of our wedding, and we got together, and we had this huge celebration, and we renewed our vows in front of all of our friends. I don't know if you realize this, but every Sunday morning, you get to renew your vows before the Lord as you break the bread and as you take the cup. You're like, man, till death do us part. Jesus, I'm in this with you. As you march to the table, it's this declaration of God's grace and of God's goodness. So for some of you, the response time will be communion. For some of you, it will be a time of just prayer and worship. You just need to fall on your knees and cry out to the Lord. There's some of you that are followers of Jesus. You've been baptized. You had a bad night last night. You cussed out your spouse, and you're like, maybe I need to get baptized. No, you're good. You're cool. You just need forgiveness. Like, you need to repent to God. You need to apologize to your spouse, but, but you're good. You're good. But we're going to have a time of prayer and response. People up here wearing red t-shirts, if you want to be prayed over, come forward and let us pray over you. Let's pray for more of God's presence in your life. But for some of you, this is your moment to be baptized. And right now, your heart is churning, I believe, and the Spirit of God is inviting you to himself. And you have all these excuses, and I, I could try to name them all. I'm not going to do that. But I just want to challenge you. Don't let anything keep you from surrender to Jesus. For some of you, it's that pride, like, I don't want the person next to me to see me go up front. I don't want my roommates or my spouse or my children. For some of you, it's pride. For some of you, it's just embarrassing to admit that you need God to save you. And Don't let your pride keep you. For some of you, it's this fear of what everyone else is going to think. What will my parents think when they hear this? What What will my friends think when they hear this? What will that person that I'm meeting for lunch in a few hours think when I show up with wet hair? Like, what are, what are they going to think? And I go, the question is, what does Jesus think? That's the question. What does Jesus think? What does Jesus want? And I just want to invite you to wrestle with that question. Don't let your pride keep you. Don't let your fear of what other people think keep you. For some of you, you are planners. My wife is a planner, like, and that's the only reason our family gets anything done. Like, she, she knows when things are going to happen. And some of you came here this morning, and God's stirring your heart, and you're just going, this just wasn't my plan. This wasn't my plan. This wasn't my idea. And I go, man, it's God's plan. And we planned for you. We have everything you need. We have clothes for you to change into, dark shorts, dark T-shirts. We have towels of every size. It doesn't matter if you're young or old, big or small. We've got clothes that will fit you. We got people here ready to answer questions. We got people filming this, taking pictures. Share it with your friends, share it with your family. Don't let anything keep you. Paul says, Have you seen what God's done in the midst of your brokenness? Have you seen what He's done? He swooped in. Do you believe in what He's done? Be baptized. Be baptized today. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you'll get the joy of living a brand new life. So I want to invite you to stand right now. I'm going to pray over you. There's going to be no, no weird manipulative voodoo here, nothing crazy. I'm just, I'm just going to pray a blessing over you. And then I'm going to invite every one of you to respond. You can go to the communion tables. You can go to the respond banner to be prayed over. But those of you that want to be baptized, I want to invite you to just move quickly. Uh, to come up front, there will be men and women wearing red t-shirts. They'll pray over you. They'll hear your story. They'll answer any questions you have. And they'll, they'll show you where to go. So when I'm done praying, it'll be your opportunity to to come and to be baptized. And we can't wait to cheer you on. We can't wait to celebrate. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing this morning. Right now, in the name of Christ, under the authority of Christ Jesus, I pray that every chain will be broken. 
In the name of Jesus, I pray that every unclean spirit that is trying to speak into our lives and our hearts right now saying, no, this is not the time, this is not for you. That in the name of Jesus, you are no longer welcome here. Those spirits are no longer welcome here. But in the name of Christ, God, we claim the freedom and the life that we have here in you, Jesus. And I just pray that you unlock our hearts, that, God, you move us to faith in you. You move us. That literally, God, you invite us to step into this beautiful thing. God, do what only you can do. Uh, would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us as we respond in confession and prayer and baptism and worship, communion. I love you, Jesus. It's in his name I pray and give thanks. Amen.